Now, I wonder if uh, many of you remember the satirical book written by Douglas Adams called The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Uh, Adams enjoyed poking fun at Christians. He had one character called Slarty Bartfast. Uh, when planets were being made, Slarty Bartfast crafted fjords to suggest erosion over many millions of years. Uh, it was a nice dig at Christians who think that the world is only 4,000 years old. Uh, the storyline of the book had uh, beings from other planets checking out planet Earth. Uh, as it was about to be destroyed by a Vogon constructor fleet to make way for a hyperspace bypass. It was a fun idea that the Earth would end, not in an apocalypse or a second coming, but in something as mundane as a pangalactic road widening. Uh, as you can expect, in, in the book, the inhabitants of Earth who found out about it uh, got a little bit upset um, this storyline came to mind during the recent climate change talks in Glasgow, and I was thinking about whether Earth is really important in the scheme of things. Uh, it's obviously necessary to us, uh, yet it was not important to the Vogons. Uh, and uh, in the view of some, it doesn't seem to be very important uh, today either. Which raises the question, is Earth important to God? Uh, he makes, has made many galaxies, stars and planets. So in terms of the vastness of space, Earth may not be that special. But God telling us that he thinks that the planets and animals that he made are good and that his image bearers live here does make it important if you believe God. And God sending his one and only son to live and die here and save those earthlings who put their trust in him for eternal life seems to me to make planet Earth pretty special to God, again, if you believe in God. An increasing number of people have been thinking about planet Earth and its survival over the last 50 years or so, and particularly recently. And these thoughts and discussions have influenced my thinking about our passage in James today. Uh, I won't get involved with party politics or the economics of action or inaction, although personally I think it's pretty clear most people will be better off, better off in all sorts of ways, including financially, if we stop the climate warming as soon as we can. The damage will be less, and Australia has a bright future as a producer and exporter of green energy. So the sooner we start, the better. But my focus today will be on the ethics and behaviours James sets out and how they speak into the cli current climate change talks. Uh, 2,000 years ago, these words were written by James, the leader of the church in Jerusalem, to some early Christian churches in and around Israel. The message James leaves us with is, in this concluding chapter, is quite simple. Be careful, because wealth can corrupt. Be patient in suffering. And pray for those in need and the lost. Good advice, then and now. But a lot has happened in those 2,000 years. Some of the challenges we face in the world today were not known back then. 
If we listen to the vast majority of climate scientists today, we face a crisis that threatens our existence and the existence of many other life forms carefully made by God. In the next 80 years, the seas may rise by one metre, drowning many islands, inundating coastal areas, destroying the homes and livelihoods of hundreds of millions of people, most of whom are very poor. 18 million people would be displaced in Bangladesh alone with a sea rise of only half a metre. Low-lying islands in the Pacific and the Torres Strait are already under threat. Many animal and plant species will be wiped out. Much of Australia that is farmed could turn to desert. Droughts and famines in Africa that are already devastating will be much worse. Wars will be fought over water. Larger fires and storms will do untold damage. Some places in the Middle East and Central Australia will simply be too hot to live in. As I read our passage today, I kept on thinking what this says to us in the face of human-caused climate change. Now listen, you rich people. Weep and wail because of the misery that is coming to you. This sentence may not have been written to rich Christians, but as a warning against people putting their hope in worldly ways and in wealth and material security. But today, if misery comes to the rich because of the damage done by climate change, we need to think about the misery that will be done and is being done now to the poor. But even to the comfortable people in Western countries like Australia, there will come a time when, verse 2, your wealth has rotted and moths have eaten your, cloths, uh, your clothes, your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. He's really going for it with the images here, isn't it? When these words were written, people knew that gold and silver did not corrode. So James is using a strong image to talk of the fragility of human wealth. He says, you have hoarded wealth in the last days. Uh, in most of the West and a fair bit of the East, people have more wealth than they have ever had in human history. But it will be useless if much of the world is uninhabitable. And there is a line that invites us to think of the people who are most vulnerable to climate change. Look, the wages you fail to pay the workers who, are, who have mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. The fruit pickers who come to Australia from Tonga and Samoa and Fiji and Vanuatu will have no place to go home to. Verse 5, you have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourself in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the innocent one who was not opposing you. The farmers and fishers in the Pacific Ocean and the Atlantic and Indian Ocean and Africa and all the countries of the world, they're not opposing us. They feed us. Yet our coal-fired power stations and use of gas and consumption of ruminant animals is killing them. I could not read this 
without the words of His Excellency Serengai S. Whips Jr. haunting me. He, he is the president of Palau, a low-lying Pacific island that is really under threat. Frankly speaking, there is no dignity to a slow and painful death. You might as well bomb our islands instead of making us suffer only to witness our slow and fateful demise. It's a pretty strong picture, isn't it? But it's doubtful as whether it did much good. Christians in poor countries are looking for us to help with our governments who are doing so little. When James spoke of people who had hoarded wealth in the last days, he was speaking of the period between the death of Jesus and his second coming, 2,000 years and counting. I listened to the people who live in coal mining areas of New South Wales and Queensland. The mines and the many businesses that rely on them, tradies, mechanics, shops and schools. I understand that they're fearful of their futures. And it's fine for people like me who live in the inner city to say we should stop all new mines and phase out coal-fired electricity plants and coal exports by 2030. But the fears that the, of those who harvest coal have reached my ears, and I am listening. And with many other concerned Australians, I'm happy for the government to throw billions of dollars at transforming the areas into production of green energy, solar, wind and green hydro. We just have to stop doing this. Because the fears of those who will have no homes because of what we're doing with coal has also come to my ears. The passage that follows this warning against hoarding wealth and ignoring the poor is one that has been misused by some Christians. Be patient, then, brothers and sisters, until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop, patiently waiting for the autumn and spring rains. You too be patient and stand firm, because the Lord's coming is near. Don't grumble against one another, brothers and sisters, or you will be judged. The judge is standing at the door. How could this be misused? We see in many places God commending patience. For example, Psalm 40, I waited patiently for the Lord. He turned to me and heard my cry. And Romans 12, 12, be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. We know the Lord is the one who sustains, who makes the rain fall on the rich and the poor. And we know the Lord will return and we have to be obedient, patient and ready. How could these truths be misapplied? It shocked me when I first heard it. I could not believe that people would believe this. But there are some Christians who believe that God will simply protect us, even if the science is so clear that we are doing this damage to his creation ourselves. And there are other Christians who believe that the scriptures teach us that the world must get worse before Jesus returns. So the quicker it goes downhill, the better. Climate change, social inequality and unrest, rising crime give them hope that Jesus will return sooner than he otherwise might. 
They see the problems of the world as God's judgment on our sinfulness and there's nothing that we can do about it or should do about it to stop that judgment coming. Why save the world when all we want is for Jesus to return? You don't tend to hear these views in Australia very often, but they are powerful in America. These views divide the Christian message on climate change. They protect economic interests that are resistant to change, and they are a distortion of the gospel. When Jesus told the parable of the Good Samaritan, he didn't suggest the Good Samaritan should just be patient and sit down and wait to see what happened. He showed very clearly that love is sacrificial action that helps people in need. When there is a need, we need to act, not sit down and just hope. Christians opposed to action on climate change are also suspicious of experts, government change, and anything that smells of social justice, which they call social engineering. And they often believe that God expects each individual to take personal responsibility for their needs and that there is no role at governments to lead or protect. There is a huge amount of material uh, on this which you can access by searching premillennial responses to climate change. But be prepared because it really is shocking. So although I long for a quiet life when I don't have to think about CO2 and methane and the rest, I just don't think I can and be faithful to Jesus. It's clear from Genesis 1 that God intends us to care for his creation as if we were God himself. The reference to being made to be like God is not so much a reference to a capacity for rational thought and personal relationships, although we should value and use them, but a conferral of divine authority and responsibility for all life. When he says subdue it, the, the, actual, the underlying words in Hebrew is far more like care for. We are to be like God to his creation, which means we are to look after it. We are here to care for God's creation as if we were God. And the Bible teaches us that we're to act sacrificially for the sake of the poor and vulnerable. The Old Testament prophets like Isaiah and Micah railed against people who were indifferent to the needs of the poor and the disadvantaged, as did Jesus. So although climate change was probably not on James's mind when he penned this letter, his account of what God values supports the church taking a strong position against inaction on climate change and human selfishness. One of the reasons I was so delighted that Ray was going to uh, Glasgow to put not just an indigenous view, but a Christian view. James says, brothers and sisters, as an example of patience in the face of suffering, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord and as I've said, many of them spoke against hurting and disregarding the poor. Another of the clear messages for the prophets was to not take God for granted. God had so often fought God's ba uh, Israel's battles for them, forgiven them when they'd repeatedly turned away from him. And once they had the temple in Jerusalem that Solomon built, 
with the inside covered in gold and wonderfully decorated. And they had God's promise in 1 Kings 9 that God would have a special presence there. They overlooked the bit about them obeying him, including caring for the poor and vulnerable. And they just thought that they were safe. They had God in a box. And they thought he would never leave the box and that the people around the box would be safe. But one prophet after another warned them that this was not the way that God worked. And the prophets were right. God used first the Assyrians and then the Babylonians to destroy Israel, the temple that that had become their security blanket, and take away the hoarded wealth. God left the temple when his people left him. Put simply, God does not like it when we take him for granted and abuse the trust that he's placed in us. There have been so many warnings that we are harming this planet and its ecology. I don't think we can assume that God will stop things from getting too bad because he likes us. We should live out our creation mandate to care for this world, to pay special attention to the needs of the poor and vulnerable and to live in humble dependence on the God who loves us. We are in this with God and we have to work with him not against him. I know James says, don't grumble against one another, brothers and sisters, or you will be judged. The judge is standing at the door. But there is a place for righteous anger and action. We cannot turn our backs on the teachings of the prophets, James and Jesus, for the appearance of harmony. As James has already said, faith without deeds is dead. A plan without action is no plan at all. James calls for perseverance. He writes, as you know, we count as a blessing those who have persevered. He's not talking about persevering through self-inflicted harm or political inaction. He's not talking, he is talking about persevering in faith and persevering through the challenges that come from playing by God's ways rather than the ways of the world. If we must pay higher taxes to support people as they close down polluting businesses and retrain for new environmentally enhancing jobs, so be it. If we stop exporting coal so foreign countries don't burn it, so be it. We must persevere in bearing God's likeness and, and carry the cost. James mentions Job, who suffered through no fault of his own and was rewarded by God's blessing. And the message is the Lord is full of compassion and mercy, but only, only when Job listened to God and fell silent as God explained the intimate interest and pride he takes in the details of his creation. Read the last two or three chapters of Job and it's really, really clear that Job needed to listen and understand God and his might and his purpose. And then Job received the blessing. Then James says something that has caused rather a lot of trouble, rather more than need. Above all, brothers and sisters, do not swear, 
not by heaven or by earth or by anything else. All you need to say is a simple yes or no. Otherwise, you'll be condemned. Uh, Some Christians have used this to refuse to swear allegiance to their kings, queens or government, which I can understand in some circumstances. But the basic message is tell the truth. And that is so important in these days of conspiracy theories and misinformation. Over 40 years ago, before climate change was politicised, there was a broad consensus that human-caused climate change was real and potentially devastating. And tens of thousands of studies since then have only confirmed that. We cannot hide our self-interest behind clouds of doubt or conspiracy theories. We must seek and tell the truth. James closes his letter with an appeal to prayer. His focus is on prayer for anyone among them who was in trouble, who was in need. The sick, the unrepentant sinner, the person who lacked faith. He mentions a prophet in the Old Testament called Elijah. Elijah was a human being, even as we are. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three and a half years. Again he prayed, and the heavens gave rain, and the earth produced its crops. Why had the rain stopped? Why did Elijah want it to stop? Because the people of Israel had become disobedient and turned their backs on God and exploited their power. Now that was one event in history that God himself links to human disobedience. And we should not extrapolate from that that every aspect of human suffering since has a cause in specific acts of disobedience. And I'm certainly not saying that we should pray for the rain to stop falling uh, in Australia or Africa or anywhere else. But it's hard to think that God is happy with what we're doing in this beautifully, finely tuned creation in which he tells us he takes so much interest and pride. He tells us that the heavens declare the glories of God, the skies proclaim his name. But we miss out if we can't see through the pollution. James has told us that by our acts of faith, we will be judged. Taking God for granted on climate change seems a strange way of showing faith. Even though the Lord is full of compassion and mercy, we should not presume on that compassion and mercy. Nor should we look after ourselves and throw the poor and those directly dependent on the land, air and sea um, on the compassion and mercy of God. Just because some people may want to buy our coal doesn't make it right to dig it up and sell it. We should be like God. We should be merciful and compassionate. And that means doing all within our powers, with our advocacy and our votes, with our decisions to care for this world. James concludes his letter with this. My brothers and sisters, if one of you should wander from the truth and someone should bring that person back, remember this, whoever turns a sinner from the error of their way may save them from death and cover over a multitude of sins. I'm not going to suggest that the sin James has in mind here is denying human-caused climate change or, or not caring for the poor by not doing much about climate change. The concept of sin 
is much broader and picks up any rejection of Jesus as Lord and his ways. This is a clear encouragement to evangelism, sharing our faith. And I've been delighted with the conversations I've had with a number of you recently about your efforts to share the gospel with friends who are not Christians. Yet I sincerely believe that it damages our cause of presenting the beauty and hope we see in Jesus when we are indifferent to the needs of the poor and disadvantaged. If we ignore God's warning and take him and his creation for granted, why would anyone listen to us? The world is a beautiful place. Let's keep it that way. Let's try and take it back to that way. Shall we pray? Lord God, we thank you for the letter of James and all it shows us of you and how you have saved us to live. Please help us to bear your image in a way that honours you and your plans for this world. Please help us to push aside self-interest and fight for truth justice for the poor, and the preservation of this precious place you have placed us in. Amen.